So many of you have probably been asked some, some deep questions by others. I call them life questions. And people come with life questions. Questions like, is there life beyond the grave? You know, like, like what happens after I die? People ask these questions. People think of these questions, as you probably have as well. You know, it, the question is, is this it? Is this what life is all about? Is this it? And then it's over. You know, at death, do I just go in the ground and that's it? You know, what happens next? And is there an afterlife? And as we have gone through our study in the Gospel of John, that has been the focus. Jesus has talked about his promise to raise his people from the dead. That there is a hope, there is a certainty after death. But maybe in your own life, maybe you've gone to the doctor and they've given you some type of diagnosis at one point or another, and you didn't know how that was going to turn out. And it made you start thinking about death. What happens in death? And it brings all these things to the forefront where you start questioning these things over again. You, as let's say a believer this morning, are still thinking, but what really happened? What happens when I breathe my last? What occurs next? What if I was wrong about what was next? What if there was no hope? Well, this morning, we're going to find out there definitely is hope. And there definitely is an afterlife. And there are definitely answers to these questions. This morning, if you're taking notes, the title of our message is Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. And by God's grace, we're going to finish John chapter 11 this morning. Some of you are looking up there and saying, really, that's a lot of verses. We're going to chunk them up into four sections, and, and by God's grace, we will get through them this morning. But let me fill you in on what happened right prior to this. Jesus is back out on the other side of the Jordan where John the Baptist had had some ministry out there, and Jesus is out there. And people are coming and they're believing in him. But then Jesus gets notice that someone whom he loves, a man named Lazarus, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, they're the ones that send notice, saying, our brother Lazarus is ill. And we're not talking about the type of illness that you're just coughing a couple times and you're better. We're talking about what I was talking about before, that something is going on in your body. You're thinking, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. I, I don't know if I'm going to see tomorrow. That's what was going on with Lazarus. And his sister sent to Jesus saying, come. And twice we read at the beginning of this chapter that Jesus loved them. He loved Lazarus. He loved Mary and Martha. He cared for them. And when he heard that Lazarus was near death, we read that he waited two more days to go. That his timing was different than theirs. That by the time he goes into town, Lazarus has already died. He's dead. So what's the point now? Why even go? Lazarus is dead. So we're going to pick this up in verse 17 this morning. As you open up your Bibles to John chapter 11, verse 17, I'm going to pray for our study this morning. Father, as we open up your word, and Lord, there are these life questions that come to mind about, is there an afterlife? What is it? Is it guaranteed? Do all have it? Or is it only some? 
Father, I pray that your word would minister to us, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that we would all leave here with great hope this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to chunk up the scriptures into four different points this morning. We're going to look at an extraordinary offer. We're going to look at an extraordinary emotion. We're going to look at an extraordinary miracle. And lastly, an extraordinary sacrifice. So the four things we'll be looking at, and we're going to cover all these verses as we go through this together this morning. So the first one, an extraordinary offer. We're going to read together verses 17 through 27 this morning. So Jesus finally come, it says in verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Anybody know anything about bodies that would sit in a tomb for days? It would stink. I know another pastor who preached on this. He called the sermon The Bad Odor. That was the title of the sermon. I thought that was funny. Because Lazarus has been in this tomb four days. Verse 18 says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went. And met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. What do we know about Martha, those of you that were here last week, or those of you familiar with the Bible? Martha is the busy one, right? She's always going, always busy doing something, and she takes off. And Mary stayed by the tomb, weeping over her brother. We see Martha approaches Jesus in verse 21 and says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Stop there. It's an incredible kind of faith. She knew if he had been there, her brother would not have died. Now, let me ask you this. As we've studied through the Gospel of John, has Jesus always had to be physically present in front of the person to heal him? No. So there's a little misguidedness in what she said, but still complete faith. She knows Jesus is able to do miraculous things. But she continues in verse 22, look at this, and she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now what is she thinking? Her brother has been in the tomb for four days. And as we'll find out later, they were kind of clueless on him actually coming back from the dead. They're thinking he's dead. He's gone. But she has faith that God can still do something. Christ Jesus can still ask the Father. Now look what Jesus says in verse 23. He says to her, your brother will rise again. There's a promise. Your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The Jews believe this. There was a couple different groups of Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were the leaders. Some people say the Sadducees, the reason they were called Sadducees, is they were the people that didn't believe in a resurrection. And they were sad, you see. There was no hope. There was no hope for them. They, they didn't believe in that resurrection. But the rest of the people were taught that. The Pharisees believed it, and she believed it, that there would be a resurrection on that last day. And Jesus said to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall 
never die. And he says, do you believe this? He looks at her and says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When we look at this big chunk of text this morning, I want to focus in on this extraordinary offer that Jesus lays out. So focus in your Bibles with me on verses 25 and 26. It's where Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked, do you believe this? What is Jesus saying? What is the offer that he's giving? It's himself, which equates to eternal life. To live forever, the only way possible, he's saying, is in me. But he starts out with this I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. As we go through the Gospel of John, John states seven of these I am statements of Christ. This is the fifth one. We read in chapter 6 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he said, I am the door. He's the only way. In chapter 10 again, he said, I am the good shepherd. And here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I want you to think about that. What's the condition of Lazarus right now? He dead. Like, dead. Like, stank in a tomb, dead. Lazarus is dead, and yet Jesus is saying, Though he die, yet shall he live. What kind of life is that? What is he speaking of? He says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Obviously, he's not talking about the physical body. He's speaking in the context of Lazarus has just died. But he's saying something about faith in him produces eternal life. Something beyond this, just this now. And we'll unpack this as we go. But he promises, if you believe in me, you will have everlasting life. You know, Jesus made this promise before about he will raise from the dead those who believe in him. Back in chapter 6, John 6, verse 40, he said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, being Jesus, and believes in Jesus, should have eternal life. And Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Church, do you realize that's a promise? It's not I might, I could change my mind, but it's I will. There is hope. A few verses later in John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus over and over again makes his promise. I will raise him up on the last day that him being inclusive of him and her, not just only the guys. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in verses 21 and 22. He says, For as by a man came death, who sinned and brought death into the world? Adam. By a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. Who do you think that is? Jesus. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So there's a curse of death, 
but there's one who has power over sin and death, and that is Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an incredible offer. Jesus doesn't look out at the crowd and say, you know what, you guys over here, you guys are kind of nice to me. If any of you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. You guys here, I don't know so much about. You guys have been gossiping behind my back and everything. You guys forget it. No chance for you guys. And you guys, I'm sorry, there was never ever a chance. (laughs) Just didn't really care about this side. He doesn't say that. He says, whoever believes in me, equal opportunity, believe. But that belief requires a response. It's not just the knowledge that I hear it and I believe it, but it requires some type of engagement, some kind of response. An extraordinary offer requires a response. Remember Jesus speaking this to Martha. Look again at verse 26, the end of it. He says, do you believe this? He engages with Martha. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Do you realize this is the exact reason why John has recorded this gospel? So people would believe in Christ? And he's recording people that are actually doing it? We see Martha right before us believing. Guys, John chapter 20, verse 31, you should be very familiar with this now, the purpose of this entire gospel. John says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, again, what does this mean to believe? Does it just mean to agree with the facts? Because everybody's seeing what Jesus is doing must agree with the facts. They're seeing what he's doing. But it doesn't mean they have genuine belief, genuine faith, saving faith. It's more than just agreeing with the facts. It's receiving Christ. It's responding to Christ. It's taking in Christ and honor him as not only Savior, but also Lord. That he would be Lord and Savior. And we read the beginning of this gospel in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Speaking of Jesus, says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You guys see there's the receiving, there's the believing. There's an action on the hearer's part. That's why as we pray, we pray that not only would God give you ears to hear, but a heart to receive and to respond. Because we don't want to grow just in head knowledge and have all the answers so we can be better at Jeopardy. Anybody still play Trivial Pursuit? Don't raise your hand. All right, somebody did. Got the little pie shapes and you fill it up in the little disc? All right. Not just for that purpose. Man, we would miss the mark if that's all. But exactly what does it mean to believe? How do I know I'm believing? What's the evidence of genuine belief? John chapter 3, verse 36, we see something profound. We read, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's what Jesus is talking about. He says, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. But John 3, 36 continues, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What? Make the connection. What does genuine belief do? It creates a form of obedience. Why? Because genuine faith regenerates the person. They're given a new heart. They're given the Spirit of God that now they have a desire for righteousness. Before, they didn't care for that stuff. 
before I really cared about what's in it for me. How do, how do I get most out of this? And all of a sudden, a work of God that would cause them to be concerned about the glory of God. That's the evidence. So the question this morning, and our first point is, have you come to Christ? Have you come to Him? Have you received Christ? The following question is, has the Spirit then subsequently filled you? Is there evidence of the Spirit of God within you? You go, well, how do I know? Well, is there a transformation? Are you now seeking to obey the things of God? Look, church, we're not going to do it perfectly. But with a new spirit, a new heart, we at least have the desire. And we see God at work when he empowers us to do what we couldn't do before. When we're able to turn from certain sin that before we were in bondage to. That's the work of God. Are these things evident? If your answer is, well, no, pastor, I have not. Well, then the invitation goes out. It's an extraordinary offer. Come to Christ. Come to him now. Now is the time to repent, to turn from your way, to turn from sin and turn to him, to receive him. Here's the beauty. He'll receive you. He'll receive you. No matter how filthy, how dirty, how ashamed you feel, he'll receive you. Turn to him. Come to him now. It's an extraordinary offer. Speaking about this Christ, in the point number two, we're going to talk about extraordinary emotion. So continue with me if you have your Bibles open in verse 28. After Martha responds to Jesus, says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary. And she said in private to Mary, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly, this is Mary, and went to Jesus. And Jesus had not yet come into the village. He was still off a couple miles, so she had gone out to him. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with Mary in her house, consoling her, saw that she rose quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So Mary is weeping in her house. She's got others there who are weeping with her. Martha says, Jesus is nearby. She takes off. And all those that were with her thought, maybe she's going to the tomb to weep. And they follow her, but guess where she's bringing them? Right to Jesus. Taking it all to Jesus. Verse 32 says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, look at her response to Jesus. She fell at his feet. What a posture of worship. She falls at his feet. She doesn't come and spit on him and slap him and say, where were you? She falls in reverence to him. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now stop there. We've already read that exact same statement. Do you know who said that? Martha, her sister, said the exact same thing. The exact same words. They share them as they face the Lord. And look at verse 33. When we talk about extraordinary emotion, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also were weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, in our English translation, we can go anywhere with that. Like, what does that mean to be deeply moved and troubled? It actually means that anger was rising within him. We could think, well, it must be sorrow. He's seeing someone weep. It means to become indignant. Well, what in the world is he upset about? Here's Mary weeping. Here's these other mourners weeping. 
what is this extraordinary emotion? What is he upset about? He's upset about the effect of sin. The cause of suffering. He's not mad at them. He's mad at the effects of the fall. And he's upset. He's getting overwhelmed in spirit. And it says, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, two words. Jesus wept. Now think about it. Jesus loved. Mary and Martha. He loved Lazarus. And he sees them so troubled, Mary and Martha. Some of you might get this way too. When some type of illness comes upon somebody, sometimes you get angry, like, why does that thing even exist? You get upset at it, like, why is it even here? Jesus is seeing the suffering caused to those whom he loved by the fall. And Jesus sees the emotion of the people, and Jesus himself weeps. So the Jews said, they see this. All these people that came with Mary see what Jesus weeping. They say, see how he loved him. Seeing Jesus weeping. But some of them, look at the others in the crowd. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That's a fair statement, right? This man who, who obviously is from God, only, only those who from God can open the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have prevented Lazarus if he loved him so much? I want to talk about this extraordinary emotion. Verse 35. You want a trivia answer? Shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. You know it's crazy? It's like in the 16th century where, where people came and said, let's put verses in the Bible, so it's easier to find a certain section. They left with two words. Those two words being so profound that they only put two words in that verse. I love what Derek Thomas is. Not my words. This is what Derek Thomas said about this. He said, "The Son of God incarnate shed tears. The Lord of glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and we're beholding here something of His immense power." And here is this sight. And you understand that in the 16th century, and he's going to talk about what I just talked about, that those who were putting the verses in stopped at verse 35 with just those two words, Jesus wept. And Derek Thomas says, because they contain more than we could ever fathom. Two words. That the Lord of glory is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, the sight of this pathetic scene of Mary in perhaps convulsive weeping before him, it angers him. He is angry at death. He's angered by what sin has brought into the world. And Warfield, he says, wrote this, it brought home to his consciousness the evil of death. He has seen the effect of the fall. And he knows he loves them, has compassion on them, weeps for them, but he's also this extraordinary emotion. He's angry at the effects of evil, of what has gone on. You see, when we think about our Jesus, he's not a little statue on the shelf. Jesus is not an inanimate object like a statue. He's not an idol that someone places on a shelf. He is God in human flesh. And he cares deeply for us. You've got to understand that. God in human flesh. Jesus wept. Tears flowed from our Lord's eyes as he watched those he loved suffer. Tears came down. 
He saw the suffering from the curse of sin. I want you to think about that. That's our Lord. The one who made this extraordinary offer and said, come to me, is one with great compassion, great emotion, great understanding. Such an amazing God. Such an amazing God that we have. What a treasure that we have in Christ. He being a God of compassion, a God of mercy. That he's a God that doesn't leave us alone in our suffering. He comforts us and he gives us hope. That's what we see in the next point. Point number three, extraordinary miracle. It's coming. Starting in verse 38, if you have your Bibles open, John chapter 11, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, talk about this emotion, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. What is she saying to him? You don't want to go in there. Remember I told you where she said, hey, whatever you ask of God, he'll do for you? She didn't even think about this happening. Because when Jesus goes to do it, she's like, oh, no, you don't want to go near there. It's going to stink in there. You don't need to go in there to see him. It's going to smell really, really bad. And Jesus says to her in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. What? You guys read that? Jesus is praying out loud for the sake of the hearers. Some of you have done that. You're in a restaurant and you're deciding, I'm going to pray for the food. And you decide to pray a little bit louder and you talk about, you share the gospel in your prayer. It was a prayer to God, but it was also a prayer for the hearers. Jesus is doing this to verify who he is, to show people, look, just as I speak to the Father, it's what's going to happen. So he's doing it for the sake of the hearers. He says, so that they would believe that you sent me. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. He didn't say go get him some makeup. He's going to look kind of nasty. He said, just take off the cloth. He's fine. He's good to go. Now, imagine being in that crowd. You ever seen anything like that? Nothing like that. Nothing. You know, when, when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, Matthew Henry, one of the famous commentators in the Bible, on his commentary on John, he says, Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come out, because if you had just said, come out, all the dead would have come out. Think about that. The power and authority of Christ. That he says, Lazarus, come out. The raising of Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead for four days is without question one of Jesus' greatest miracles in the Gospel of John, other than himself rising from the dead. But in what he did, think about the crowd. You don't even want to go near that tomb. Don't open that stone. It's going to reek in there. These people had no idea. And these are people that loved Jesus, believed in him. They had no idea what he was able to do. They had just a glimpse. 
just a glimpse. Look at verse 40 again. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you, he says, that if you would believe, look in your Bibles, go back to the beginning of John chapter 11. I don't think it's up here, but the beginning of John chapter 11, verse 4. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is ill from Mary and Martha. And in verse 4 of John chapter 11, it says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus waited two days to go because he knew this was going to happen, that in four days after this man had been dead and stinking in the tomb, he would call him out. Jesus already knew this. Why? To solidify to all the claims that Christ had made about himself, that he was God. You know, even today when you ask somebody, tell me about Jesus, what do you know about him? They'll say, well, he was a good teacher. He, he was a good man. I mean, you can't deny the historical records of Christ. So you can't just say he never existed. But some will say, well, he, he was just a good guy. Or, or he, was, he was a prophet. He was God. He said it by, of himself, before Abraham was, I am. Speaking the same way as the Father ask you a question, who could heal the lame? Who could give sight to the blind? And who could bring back the dead into life? Only God. Only God. No one else, none other than God himself. And there should be no denying him now. He's done everything that God could do. And this most certainly is an extraordinary miracle. Again, think about being in the audience, seeing this happen. How do you respond? Well, we're going to see the response in our last point, number four this morning, extraordinary sacrifice. Extraordinary sacrifice, point number four, starting in verse 45. Look at the response, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Well, hello? Really? You would think that was a no-brainer. This guy has done things no one else could do. And as he does it, he doesn't say it's because of me. He says it's... I and the Father are one. He claims he is God in human flesh. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, I want to start with that first word, many. Does that mean everybody? Can you believe that? Not everybody. Many. Now, they saw it. They saw it firsthand. But none can come to, the or come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. God had worked on some in the crowd and let them come. And others stayed staunch in their rejection of him. They stayed there. And by the way, for homework, read Romans chapter 1. That those who want to deny God and chase after darkness, it says, and he gave them over to it. Boy, that's not a place you ever want to be. Where God gives you over to those fleshly and carnal pursuits because you continue to resist and straight-arm him and continue to go after, his way, after your own way, that he says he gave them over. And that sin they chased after, it was just like this, a downward spiral, the degradation of sin. Here, there are many who see what had happened, many who believe in him, but some of them, they turn into tattletales. We're going to go tell on him. We're going to tell what he did. And look, it says in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So they go to the religious leaders. Verse 47, we're going to see this whole thing where they freak out. 
So in verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. This is the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel, those religious leaders that would come and make decisions for Israel. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh, what a shame that would be, right? You should believe in him. But they feel threatened. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and look at the consequence. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I want you to project forward a little bit. What's going to happen to Christ? He's going to be crucified. These same people are going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They were threatened by their own power, their own position. Totally forgetting about everything that he's done. And you say, what idiots. How could you be so stupid? And yet here we are 2,000 years later, and guess what? People feel threatened by Christ. Well, if I come to Christ, then that means my life's going to change. It means my pursuits are going to change. Well, I don't want anything to do with him. You guys see in the correlation? Same thing. I'm afraid that my power, the position, my authority, my whatever, that now I no longer have authority. When Christ becomes Lord, guess what? He has authority over you. Which here's the foolish thing. He has authority over you anyway. It's like bend the knee already. He already has authority. So they're feeling threatened. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he said to them all, you know nothing at all. I love that statement. These are all the religious leaders. You know nothing at all. He says, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He he did this, or he did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I want to unpack that real quick as we go through this. Caiaphas stands up, and he makes a statement that is is prophetic. Because it's exactly what Christ is going to do. He's going to die one for all. But his motive was not the same. His motive was like, hey, check it out. What if we just sent an innocent man to death, but everybody else is saved? Why don't we do that? Why trouble the whole nation of Israel? We could just take one sacrifice and throw it on him. Make him be the scapegoat. He's not seeing the full spiritual connotation of it. He's saying, we just need to save our people. We don't want Rome to come in and take, take over. So let's just kill Jesus. Church, this is the divine hand of God. This is God's plan, not Caiaphas's. He doesn't realize it. That this is exactly how salvation is going to come to all. But this man stands up and says, let's sacrifice the one to save the nation. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That was it. Everything going forward is, how do we kill Jesus? It says, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples And it says, now the Passover, verse 55, of the Jews was at hand. Many went up to the country, to Jerusalem, before the Passover, to purify themselves. And here's what the people are wondering. Look at verse 56. They're looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he'll come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know 
so that they might arrest him. And why do they want to arrest him? Put him to death. So it's on right now, people. It, 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 it's go time. Right now, the leaders have decided we need to kill Jesus. In order to save our nation, Jesus must go. There must be a sacrifice of one for all. And here's the beauty of that statement. It's exactly what he came to do. To give himself for everyone else. That's why our point is titled, Extraordinary Sacrifice. We're going to focus on these words of Caiaphas, the high priest, verses 49 through 52. Look at him again with me. Caiaphas, the high priest that year, says, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. One should die for all. This is profound. This is all over Scripture. 2 Corinthians, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He writes, For our sake, God made Christ, he made him, to be sin who knew no sin. Christ who walked in perfection. All of our sin being placed upon him, so that in him being Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the plan of God. This is not Caiaphas's big lofty idea of let's just sacrifice one. This is God's idea. That we will send one to die so all can go free. It's an amazing sacrifice. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He being Jesus, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's what he has done. He has set us free. So the question I have as we go through this extraordinary sacrifice is this. Did God have to save us? I saw some of you being real quick to shake your head. Some of you were thinking, is this a trick question? Did he have to? I mean, was it like God's arm was forced and he's like, I have to save these people. Peter writes something really interesting about angels. Look, look at this, what he writes about angels. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So angels. Did he have to save us? Uh, this, this should be, you know, a little emoji with a little going off. That's one of these times. It's mind-blowing. Because so often we think about us first and think, well, of course he's going to save me. I'm special. I'm good and I have things to offer. But God didn't have to save us. He didn't have to make a way of salvation. But he did. You know why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. After it talks about us being dead in our sins and trespasses, doing all that we would do according to the world, verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Church, here's what that means. Even when you were sitting up a storm, even when you were in a complete rebellion to him, knowing that what you were doing was rebelling against the Holy God, he chose to demonstrate his love to you by sending his son to die for you. He didn't send a message saying, hey, people, 
clean yourselves up. Make yourselves acceptable in my sight, and then I will choose you. He says, even when you were dead in your sin, I loved you, and I gave my son to die in your place. You see, we have four needs. You see, we, we, we're, first, we deserve to die as a penalty for sin. We all deserve to die as a penalty for sin. Secondly, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. So his wrath is being stored up against us. We rightly deserve that. Look, it wouldn't be fair if, if, if somebody else sinned and I have to bear their wrath, the wrath of God. They bear their own wrath. They've stored up. They've rebelled against God. They're storing up that wrath on their own head. That's a problem. We have to bear God's wrath against sin. Also, we're separated from God by our sins. The fourth thing, we're in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. Those are four seriously problematic things. But all four of those are met by Christ. They're all completely satisfied in Christ. All four of those needs. The first way is it's called sacrifice. Talking about an extraordinary sacrifice. Sacrifice means to pay the penalty of death. It's the penalty that we rightly deserved because of our sins. Christ died as a sacrifice for us. First one, sacrifice. He gave of himself. We read this in Hebrews chapter 9, the end of verse 26. Speaking of Christ, it says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He paid the penalty for all sin. Past sin, present sin, future sin. He gave himself as a sacrifice. The next thing is called propitiation. It's a big word. To remove from us the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. To remove the wrath of God that Christ died as our propitiation. What does that mean? God doesn't just overlook sin. His wrath must go someplace. And guess where it went? Jesus. I mean, just study. I mean, we will. But on your own, study when Christ was crucified and all the crazy things that happened. Why? Because all of the wrath from all of mankind was placed upon Christ at the time. For the first time in history, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Crazy. Crazy. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, which means all the wrath went on to him. That God is just. Justice has been met in Christ. He took the penalty. The third one is reconciliation. It's to overcome our separation from God. To be reconciled back to God. We needed somebody to provide that reconciliation to bring us back in fellowship with God. We read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in the last part of verse 18, Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, listen, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. Okay, wait. I've sinned in way more ways than I'm even aware of I've sinned. But I have intentionally sinned at times and rebelled against a holy God. And because of that, I, my own conscience, knows that I am rightly due for the punishment that I'm rightly deserving. I've sinned against a holy God. 
And because of that sin, I've also separated myself from God. And there's no way I can do anything to earn or deserve getting back in fellowship. That something has to happen to that sin. Something must happen to that uh, wrath. Christ was the answer. That he would pay the penalty, that he would take on the wrath, and that he would restore fellowship with the Father. The word that we're speaking of is the word redemption. When you think of the word redemption, you know, as sinners, we're enslaved in bondage to sin and to Satan, and we need someone to provide redemption. That word redeem, to be redeemed from, some, from something of bondage. We speak of, you heard the word ransom? The word ransom, the idea of ransom, it's a price paid. A price paid to redeem somebody from bondage or from captivity. And guess what Christ did on our behalf? He paid the ransom. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, speaking of Jesus, says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He could have came and said, Worship me now. But instead, he came to die for us. That we might go forth. That we might have eternal life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you care even a remote bit about life? Do you care what happens with those life questions of what happens after death? What's going to happen next? Jesus says, I am the answer, and I'm here to provide you eternal life. There is only hope in Christ. There's only assurance in Christ. And he offers you eternal life. He's not an inanimate God. He's a living God. He's a living God with extraordinary emotion. And he's able to bring you from death to life. From darkness to light. He is the only one has given himself, the only one who's given himself in your place. To die in your place. That's intimate. And some people say, for God so loved the world, it was about everybody. You know what? It's about you. That before the foundations of the world, he knew you, that he had chosen you. Before you had done anything good or bad, he had chosen you. So the response this morning is come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Repent and believe in him. Enjoy him. May your life glorify him. But he is the answer to all of those life questions. It's Jesus. And he stands there, arms open wide, and says, come to me and find rest. Let's pray. Father, what glorious news that we are reminded of this morning. That Jesus Christ, being truly God and truly man, as we see in the Scriptures, we see miraculous things done by him, the one who could do all things, but the one who makes also the promise of come to me and I will give you eternal life. We see an extraordinary offer to believe in him. Father, I pray this morning that you would draw man or woman or child unto yourself in genuine faith today, that they would receive Christ as both Lord and Savior. That, God, you would transform them, renew them from the inside out. Father, that they would begin this day to live a life that enjoys being in your presence, 
that enjoys Christ, that brings glory to you. Father, may the rest of us who you've drawn out of darkness, brought into light, may we rejoice and praise you, for you are good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.